I am unwilling to give up, that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out, knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control, control, control. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I am so excited to have my next guest here. I was just sharing with him how I was doing plenty of research on him, and I was so excited. It's really nice to interview somebody, especially when you already use a product that they actually co-founded and developed. We have Uri Levine here, who is the co-founder of Waze, amongst other startup, and he's also the author of a brand new book called Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution, that you all need to go out and purchase. I uh, got an early copy of it, and it is absolutely excellent. So hearing it from a serial entrepreneur and a developer, a founder, is uh, definitely very, very exciting and definitely up my alley. Uri is probably best known for co-founding the world's largest community-based driving traffic and navigation app called Waze, which was acquired by Google in 2013 for $1.1 billion. and he has helped build more than a dozen startups, and in doing so has seen everything ranging from the ones that didn't work out to mid-level success and then obviously immense success. And as I mentioned, he just published his first book, very exciting, Fall in Love with the Problems, Not the Solution, which is launching actually this week. So you're learning about it right when it is coming out. I can't wait to speak to Uri about his journey and about his new book. So let's get started. Welcome, Uri. Thank you. Very, very excited to have you here. So I'd love to hear a bit about you. I, I listened to another interview that you did where you said you were a nonconformist. <laughs> Aren't we all? All the visionary entrepreneurs, definitely. But what were you like growing up? Troublemaker. <laughs> At the end of the day, most of the entrepreneurs, they, they, they don't accept anything for granted, right? They will keep on challenging different things. They will go and investigate. They will go and research. They will try to do things their own way. And, and when you look at or any other um, um, formal um, uh, framework, then they would become troublemaker. Uh-huh. And I maker and uh, um, and at the end of the day it turns out to be awesome when you become an entrepreneur right but this is uh, essentially a requirement if you're a troublemaker then you already increase the likelihood of becoming an entrepreneur and as a result you already increase the likelihood of being successful because if you don't try then you're definitely not going to be successful I love it and I bet you have people coming back to you telling you the ones that actually reprimanded you for being a troublemaker saying I always knew you would do something great I bet yes of course right 
My first grade teacher, she reached out to me after the Waze acquisition and she said, I knew that you're going to do something great. Those are the most fun when people actually realize they remember you for something. And it's always the ones that maybe didn't see the bonus of you being a outside of the box kind of thinker. It's a lot of fun. And obviously you've done amazing, amazing, great things. So many startups and probably the most famous one that you've done is Ways, which you ultimately sold to Google in 2013 for $1.1 billion. Crazy. What was the problem that you were solving? I would imagine it was around traffic. I mean, did you sit there and like think about it for a while? Essentially, what triggers my, my um, I would say, creative thought process is uh, frustration. Mm-hmm. And into a frustration situation, and I keep on asking myself, is that the way it is? There is no way that we can change that. Uh, and then I would end up with thinking about it and, and allowing that frustrations to last longer so I can keep on thinking of whether or not it can be changed, right? And in case of traffic, uh, I hate traffic. And it's always something that is a, is a very strong emotion that triggers you to do something. You run into something that you really like, or you run into something that you really hate, and you tell yourself, no. This is something that I have to change. And, and it was only in 2006 um, when, when I had the eureka moment, the aha moment that, that I needed. And this is where we were on a family vacation up north, uh, the northern part of Israel. And Israel is a small place. It's uh, about the same size as Massachusetts. And uh, at the end of the day, if you spend the time in the mountains in Massachusetts and at the end of the weekend, you need to go back to Boston, then you will end up on the mass pike. That's mm-hmm. it, right? In Israel, there are two alternative routes, and, uh, and and I was thinking, which one should I take? And we were like 10 families there, and everyone left before we did. And so I called them, and, uh, and the one that, or those that were on one route told me, no, this is a nightmare traffic jam, you don't want to go here. And the other one told me, you know what, it's actually not that bad. And I realized that the only thing that I need is someone ahead of me on the road tell me what's going on. And, and that was in 2006, and it was only created in 2007 when I met my uh, Arab co-founder, um, Amir and Ehud, um, that they saw the other part of the equation, right? And because if you will tell us... How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning, too. They've got you covered. 
Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think, and makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. Okay, you know, if I have other people ahead of me on the road, they will tell me what traffic light is, and I can actually avoid traffic jams. That's essentially the magic of Waze. We, the drivers, 
are sharing the information in order to avoid traffic jams, right? So, so outsmarting traffic together. And that was the tagline for Waze for, for many years. You were in an office in Tel Aviv with these two other founders. I, I always think like that would be a great reality show. Get in there early for these successful startups and go back and sort of hear their thinking back in those early days. So when you were thinking about how do we make this thing work or how does Waze work? So Waze is a magical journey because Waze crowdsource everything, right? Not just traffic information, which is obvious, yeah. or speed, which is obvious, the map itself. And so when we started, there was a blank page. There was no map at all. And the first driver actually created uh, the first road as they drive. And so we collect the GPS data from the driver's device. And if we take this data and convert that into a computer um, representation, then we end up with a sort of drawing in this blank page, uh, the first road and the intersection and so forth. And when you collect that from a lot of drivers, you're starting to get something that looks like a map. And, and ways crowdsource the map data itself. Now, we needed that because in order to have traffic information, we need to have a lot of drivers. And you can only get a lot of drivers if your application is free. Mm-hmm. If this is going to be paid application, you're not going to get a lot of drivers. You're going to get a lot of money, maybe, but not a lot of drivers. And so in order to have traffic information, we needed a lot of drivers. The problem was that the map, the map data at the time was extremely expensive to license. And so if you're going to license something that is really expensive and you're going to offer a free application, this is not a good business model. This is going to fail. And so we had to create our own maps and we figure out that we can do that through crowdsource. And this is uh, the, the genius idea of, uh, of Ehud Chaptai that uh, was later the CTO, one of uh, the co-founders and the CTO of Waze. And he actually was the one to, to figure that out. Now, this is a uh, 2007 when we met and decided that this is what we're going to build. The first version of Waze was running on a PDA. Wow. Remember? Yeah. Long, long, long time ago, there were dinosaurs. Yes. And then PDA and then Nokia phones. And today we all have iPhones and Android, right? This long time ago is 15 years. That's it. This is how fast things are changing. Yeah. Well, fast or slow. I mean, it's funny. I I always tell, uh, you know, my own story of being at a product that was a spin out of Apple that was doing direct to consumer shopping back in 1994 called Two Market that was uh, a Steve Jobs idea. And uh, we were still using the fax machine for orders. Like we'd get really excited when the phone rang and we had Some of us had a very large phone that we were able to use when we were out traveling. And I mean, it's it's crazy to think back on those days. But I'm glad that we have at least progressed significantly, including to be able to do great things like Waze. So how did you get the word out? You said, you know, you needed users, obviously, to be able to crowdsource. But how did you get the word out about this? And so for a second, I would say um, in crowdsourcing, um, the first users are always going to be enthusiastic amateurs. There are people that care about what you're doing, right? So you will find them on today on Facebook groups, or maybe they're reading a specific magazine. It's easy to find the enthusiastic amateurs. The data of ways, the, and, and this is general rule of crowdsource, right? So, so if you have data that their longevity is long, 
like map data, then it's enough that you have few and active participations to create them. If you want to have transient data like traffic information that is valid now and in 15 minutes it's going to be irrelevant, then you actually need a lot of users and you need to collect that automatically because you cannot rely on active participations of all the audience. You can rely on active participation of very few percentage of the audience, usually it's going to be a fraction of percent. Uh, and, and ways is crowdsourcing both of them in, in the same way, right? Automatically the traffic information and automatically sort of the map data and the thing that requires additional information like street names and house numbers and so forth. This is through active participation. Um, and, and at the beginning, we basically said, okay, um, um, the map evolved over time until it became good enough. And ways is free. And free wins, that's it. No one can compete with something that is free and good enough, right? And so just imagine that we think of Gmail and everyone is using Gmail. Like I don't even know a person that doesn't, right? Yeah. By the way, my, my personal email is, uh, is still on Yahoo because this is from 1994 or 1995 or something like that. I love it. Yeah. And when I shared that with someone, he told me, you know what? There are only two people in the world that I know that are using Yahoo. You and my grandma. And so I realized that uh, that I'm ready to become a grandma. Um, I I'm love it. Yet, but I'm ready. Um, anyhow, so, so as it turns out, and you think of Gmail, Gmail is 17 years old. Right? Before that, we actually used to pay money in order to have a mailbox. We have the internet service provider. We pay money to have access. And we paid additional money to have a mailbox. And then Google introduced Gmail. And at the beginning, it was not good enough. It went, it became good enough through iterations and iterations and iterations. And then it became good enough and free. And no one can compete with that. So good enough and free is going to win, to win the market. And no one can compete with that later on as well, because there is no better offer. Right? If it's good enough, then you're not going to bother to switch. You don't care about it, about it anymore. It's good enough. That's it, right? You know, it, it was probably good enough when we launched that in Israel in 2009. We also had uh, GPS data coming from fleet management company that shared their data with us, which helps us to accelerate this flywheel, this magical wheel that, that more data, it makes the application better, more application better, it's easier to bring more users and so forth. So this flywheel actually worked beautifully in Israel. And uh, in the end of 2009, we tried to launch that in the rest of the world and it was not good enough. Interesting. It was actually really bad. So how did you know it wasn't good enough? What was the point when you really saw that it wasn't getting the traction or was it making mistakes? When you're building a new company or you want to launch a new product, there is a general rule that basically says the following. If you do not figure out product market fit, you will die. That's now, Product market fit means that you're creating value to your users. And there's only one way to measure it, that they're coming back. So retention is going to be the only indications that you have reached product market fit. Now, the challenge is, and the way that we learned that is that the retention was very low. So people like the story, we, the drivers, are going to fight traffic jams together. And essentially what happened is that uh, they downloaded that. They wanted it to work. They really wanted it to work because everyone hates traffic jams, right? And then what happened, it didn't. It was not good enough. There was not, not even not the basic navigation going back home didn't. And so what we did is we we called the drivers. We spoke with them, and they told us what doesn't. Now this go back into one of the critical understanding of building a startup. And this is about the journey. 
and, and building a startup is a journey. It's a, it's, it's a complex journey. Right. And it's a roller coaster journey with ups and downs and ups and downs. And, and look, if you'll tell me all the businesses in the world have ups and downs, I agree. But the frequency of those when building a startup are be a few times a day. Right? That I owe the best, the best quote to Ben Horvitz from Recent Horvitz that we discussed earlier. And he used to be a CEO of a startup before he founded Recent Horvitz. And, uh, and he was asked whether or not he was sleeping well at night as a CEO of a startup and said, oh, yeah. I slept like a baby. I woke up every two hours and cried. And that's really the reality of, of building startups. So a roller coaster journey is one thing, a journey of failures, because, you know, we want to believe that we know exactly what we are doing, but we're trying to create something new that no one did before. And if this is the case, then we are taking our thesis and trying to make it work. And usually it doesn't, right? And so we try another thing and another thing and another thing. And you ended up with a journey of failures for each one of the phases of the startup. And, uh, um, and that journey of failures, there are two conclusions that are critical part of it, right? So one of them is that if you're afraid to fail, then in reality, you already failed because you're not going to try. And so perhaps the most important thing that we would like to encourage in a corporate that would like to embrace innovation is reduce the fear of failure because otherwise people are not going to try, right? If you know that you're going to try something new and if it doesn't work, you will get fired, you're going to try something new. And so fear of failure is critical. If there is one thing that we would like our kids to learn is don't bring A+. plus, Fail and fail and fail again and again and again because this is what's going to make you successful and, and essentially is going to establish the perseverance that you will need to go through challenging periods of time. And, and we usually teach them something completely different, right? Don't bring F, bring A plus, right? Yeah. And so we require them to excel, but in order to actually excel, you need to learn how to recover from failures. So one thing is that if you're afraid to fail, you're ready to fail. The other conclusion is fail fast. Because when you fail fast, you actually have enough time to make another experiment or another attempt and so forth. Uh, and that essentially, if you make multiple attempts to do, to do something, then you essentially increase the likelihood of being successful. And to that extent, I would say, look, the biggest enemy of good enough is perfect. You don't need to be perfect in order to be successful. You need to be good enough. And this is really critical to understand. Going back into the waste journey, 2010, we launched that uh, globally and it didn't work. We speak with the drivers. They told us what doesn't, right? So, okay, you know what? This route doesn't work and so forth. And we fixed everything. We built the next version. We know that we fixed everything. We know that this is it and it's not. So we're doing it all over again, right? So we are speaking with the drivers. We understand what doesn't work. We build the next version. We know that this is it and it's not. And this is really, that was a whole year of iterations after iterations after iteration. And this is essentially what is required in order to become successful. You need the perseverance. You need the conviction that every time that you go, this time it's going to work. And just imagine that you are a basketball player, right? You are Steph Curry. Steph Curry believes that he is uh, going to hit 100% of the shots that he takes. Otherwise, he wouldn't take them. Right? Mm -hmm. But the reality is that he's doing less than that, right? Now, he is still absolutely amazing, right? Michael Jordan used to say that... Uh, that, you know, I failed so many times and because of that, I'm successful. Uh, and so this journey of failure is critical to understand. And, uh, um, and I think that this is really uh, 
one of the of the key understanding of building a startup. This is going to be roller coaster journey. So if you don't like extreme sports, maybe startup is not for you. And um, it's going to be a journey of failures. And the last part, which is the most critical part, is that it's going to be very long. And there is a longest part of it with no traction, that your product simply not good enough. And you don't see any traction because you bring users and they churn. You bring users and they churn. Or you build a product and it doesn't work. And you build the next version and it doesn't work. And each one of these parts is critical to understand. Because if you do not figure out product market fit, you will die. As simple as that. I love that. As you're speaking, we've had a number of people on this podcast who are from all different industries. And it's very consistent that it takes a lot longer. You have to try things constantly and keep trying. And I think that the other thing that you have that, you know, definitely, I think I heard about it through other people. So when consumers are actually talking to their friends about your product and getting people to try it, you know you're on to something. And I think that, that is exactly what happened with Waze for sure. I'm curious though, did you, this is a bit tactical, but did you launch it outside of Israel? Did you go into any different countries or did you just, you know, just because it was we, all we, over the place? This magic can work everywhere. And we basically made it available everywhere. We put some marketing efforts in the US and then we additional marketing efforts in places that it started to take off, but it was longer, way longer, way later, actually, uh, when it started to take off. But at the end of the day, and this is really important, um, you know, everyone wants to, that their product will become viral. Let me define that for a second. Viral means that I cannot use the product if you don't have that. So fax machine is viral, right? Because I cannot send the fax to myself. And I need someone else to have a fax machine. Obviously, today, no one cares, right? But uh, Messenger, WhatsApp, SMS, text messaging are viral. I need someone else to be able to receive that. And I would go ahead and convince them in order for me to, to have it work. What most people refer to is word of mouth. When they say viral, they actually meant word of mouth. Word of mouth is, is look, if you will ask 100 people on the street, how did you hear about ways? Most of them are going to tell you, someone told me. And that's usually, that's word of mouth. Right? Now, word of mouth works only when you have high frequency of use product. If your product is not being used on a regular basis, word of mouth is not done. The reason is very simple. Every time that you use the product, it's an opportunity for you to tell someone, right? And maybe... Uh, 10% of the cases you will tell some. Now, if you're going to use that once a year, it's not going to exponentially grow. Right? If you're going to use that every day, then during the month, you're going to tell three people. And if you're going to use that twice a day, then during the month, you're going to tell six people. And this is where word of mouth is actually working. Now, word of mouth will be working for high frequency of use product only after you figure out product market fit. Interesting. There's a lot there. So the transaction with Google was considered one of the largest transactions in Israeli history. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that you put Israeli technology on the global map. That must have been very, very cool to hear that coming from the kid who was always getting in trouble. But uh, you have a book out, as I mentioned, called Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution, which is so good. Very spot on for me as a fellow startup founder. 
What do you hope people gain from the book and why did you decide to write it now? So two things, right? So most people would know me as an entrepreneur, right? I build startups. I have a dozen of them. Some of them are more successful, less successful. But there is another very strong personality of me of being a teacher. And, and I like to share my know-how, my knowledge, my experience with other people. And to a certain extent, I would say, um, and today I'm not running any of the companies. I'm mentoring the CEOs, I'm guiding them, I'm helping them. Um, and I feel equally rewarded when I build stuff myself or I help someone to build it. And, and when I realized that, and I was teaching some classes of entrepreneurship, I, I basically say, wait a minute, the world is going to be changed for the good by entrepreneurs. These are the people that actually have enough grit to go and change the world. And, and I want to help them. I want to increase their likelihood of being successful. And this book is about that. Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple, he told me, look, I wish I had that when I started. And, and then he called that the Bibles for entrepreneurs. Yeah, which is um, amazing. To get him to say that is pretty powerful. So he does not do that very often. I always share with entrepreneurs that ideas are a dime a dozen, but it's really the execution that is going to separate the ideas from the companies, I guess is the best way to, to look at it. But when should your idea become a startup? You talked about uh, market fit, but are there any other key variables? So the first thing is that you need to fall in love with this journey. You need to have enough passion to decide that this is what you're going to do. You need to be in love, and I would say in love with the problem to the level that you're willing to sacrifice because you need this being in love in order to cross the challenging period that everyone is going to tell you this will never work and, the, um, and you will have no traction and, and this is going to be a nightmare um, a journey that, that you might face and you need to be in love in order to go into this journey. And the best would be that you solve a problem. And, and so I would say, start with a problem. Think of a big problem. Think that the world will become a better place if you solve it. And then go and speak with other people that you want to think that they have the problem and understand their perception of the problem. And all then go and start to build a solution. Now, if you follow this path and your solution works, it's guaranteed that you're creating value because you're solving a problem. If you start with the solution, you might be building something that no one cares. Now, if you want to qualify your idea, then, then think of a two-dimensional matrix, right? One matrix is the size of the addressable market. So, so my solution is going to create value for how many people or how many companies, right? And so, so one dimension will be addressable market and the other dimensions will be, so in how much value do I create for those users or customers? And value can be measured by time, money, and so forth, or can be measured by frequency of use. And, and so obviously, if you're going to solve a big problem, that means addressable market is large and the frequency of use or the value is, is high. Um, and the result is that you're going to be a winner. And, uh, and it's also obvious that if you have no possible market and you don't create any value, that this is going to be a loser anyhow. Um, most of the companies are actually on either, either um, small addressable market and very high value, and those will be niche solutions. Now, niche could be very large, right? Using selling to businesses means that you're going to be very large and very successful. The challenge is where the addressable market is large. 
but the frequency of use or the value that you create is is low. And then there is no way for you to actually reach out to the addressable market because uh, you don't create enough value, so you are not going to to have word of mouth, or you don't create enough value, and so people are not going to pay you, or customers are not going to pay you enough so you can so you can actually acquire new users, and you will end up with a, with a nightmare rather than a dream. Um, and, and so I'm usually would be using this qualification metrics, looking at uh, how big the problem is, right? Can I quantify the size of the problem? And, uh, um, and if the problem is big, then I'm already liking it. And, uh, and if I feel personal frustrations, then I like it more. And the thing that I would say is that if I find the right team, I probably will start that. Do you always recommend having co-founders? I know that you had two other co-founders for Waze, but what are your thoughts on on that? So it's a tricky question, right? Because um, we started three founders and we hired Noam Bardeen as a CEO about a year or something after we started. So essentially we can say four. And we stayed all four of us until the acquisition. Usually in, when you look at startups, you will see that... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, some of the co-founders did not work out for them and they left. But at the same time, I would say this is a very challenging journey. Doing it by yourself is going to be very hard. And you really want something that you'll be able to share the, the, the challenges and the pain and the journey and the joy and the, uh, and the celebrations. And so you, um, I would say in general, yes, I would like to go into this journey with uh, our co-founders. But this is also... Um, you know, personal preferences. I work very well with other people, uh, but not everyone does. Yeah, definitely. I think the majority of people are sort of pro co-founders because I think you talked about the spikes and I think having somebody else with you during times to be able to lift you on those days as well is really such a key thing too. So you talked in the book, and and I've heard you in interviews talking about firing people, obviously not a fun thing that anyone likes to do, but you've heard the saying, hire slow, fire fast, but any suggestions or words of wisdom on that? I would start by saying, um, you know, after ways I met a lot of entrepreneurs and many of them, they're a startup failure and ask them why, what happened? And about half say the team was not right. So I kept on asking, okay, what do you mean the team was not right? And I heard not good enough as major reason. Another reason that I heard quite often is that we had uh, communication issues, something that I actually called the uh, ego management issues. Um, and then I asked them the most interesting question, when did you know that the team is not right? Now, all of them knew within the first month. All of them knew within the first month. There was one that told me before we even started. So he said, wait a minute. If you knew within the first month that the team is not right and you didn't do anything, the problem was not that the team is not right. The problem was that the CEO did not make hard decisions. Making easy decisions is easy. Making hard decisions is hard. This is why most people don't like to make them because you need to live with the consequences. And, and in small organization like startup, all those hard decisions will go all the way to the top to the CEO. I want you to think of small organization, whatever, a team of 20 people or 30 people or, or a startup of 30 people, whatever it is. And there is someone that shouldn't be there. And that someone shouldn't be there for whatever reason. Right? Maybe this person is 
way under delivering and maybe this person is a complete jerk that no one likes to work with. If there is someone like that, everyone knows. Everyone knows it's a small place. Everyone knows and the CEO doesn't do anything. That's the nature of the beast. That's the problem. Because what goes through the mind of the other people is that, okay, wait a minute. CEO doesn't know that this person shouldn't be here. That means that he is stupid. This is not good. The other option is even worse. Does know and still doesn't know anything. That's even worse. That means that the CEO lacks the leadership of making the hard calls. And the result, by the way, is always the same. The top performing people would leave. Now, I have a chapter in my book that is called Firing and Hiring. And when I send that to the publisher, he returned that back and said it should be hiring and firing. And I said, no, no, no. Firing is hard decision. Hiring is easy decision. This is why you need to learn to fire before you can even hire. And my strongest recommendation in this chapter is, is two, two aspects. Like one is when you hire a new person, mark your calendar for 30 days down the road to ask yourself one question. Knowing what I know today, I hire this person. Now, if the answer is no, fire them immediately because you already set the trajectory for this person not to be successful. And it's not about you, not about the company. It's about that person. That person deserves an opportunity to become successful. And it's not going to be here. Yeah. So you are letting that person succeed someplace else by doing that. Because here, that person is not going to be successful. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. I, I think it's most fair to the other person to, to let them go off and go be successful somewhere where they're going to be able to shine. Uh, so I, I absolutely think you're doing everybody a favor if that's what your perception is at 30 days. So that was a great chapter. I, I love that. So you're a builder. Uh, you're also a scaler. You prove that uh, founders can actually scale because I think often we hear uh, that founders are the crazy ones. Uh, they are the crazy ones, but there are a few of us that can actually scale companies too. Uh, so launching a company is not just about having an idea, as you've mentioned, market fit and solving problems for your consumers and raising money, building boards, building a team. Uh, what am I missing? Where are the other landmines that new entrepreneurs uh, listening run into? So, so, so two aspects. One is it's a multi-phase journey building a startup, right? Because so, in order to become successful, you will need to figure out product market fit. We already established that. You will need to figure out your business model. How do you make money? Now, in general, I would say, look, if you create a lot of value, you will figure out a way to, to make money. And you will need to figure out growth, right? Because if you really become, want to become a market leader, then you will need to be a market dominant. You will, have, you will need to have a sustainable business model. You will need to create value, sustainable business model, and the ability to grow. And each one of them is going to be a separate journey. And the, the role of the CEO is to understand that when you are shifting gears from one journey to another journey, it's a whole new story and you start from scratch. And this is going to be another journey of failures and another long journey of failures and another roller coaster journey. And then you will need to switch gears again when you go to the next phase. And only after you figure out those three phases, only then you become on the path of taking off, right? I want us to think of large companies, right? Like uh, maybe Google and Amazon and uh, and, uh, and Facebook and Tesla and the companies of the world, right? Many of those. 
and Netflix and so forth. And ask yourself, and, and those, uh, you know, Amazon, Google, and Netflix are about 25 years old, 25 each, like a little bit more. Tesla and Facebook, and uh, um, they are way less. They are less than 20. And ask yourself the following question. How much of their aggregated value, so market capitalizations of all of those together, how much of that value was created in the first decade of their existence versus the rest of the time? And in some cases, the rest of the time is only seven years. And sometimes the, the rest of the time is 15 years. And I asked that a lot of questions. And, uh, um, and what most people told me, most of it at the beginning, only 4% at the beginning. Because what happened in the first decade is the realizations of, okay, I need to figure out product market fit. I need to figure out business model. I need to figure out growth. And only then you're a path of becoming very successful. And so most of the value was created after they become very successful. Um, and, and this is something that people need to realize, right? And they need to realize for two reasons. Number one, it's a long journey. If you're not willing to commit yourself to a 10 years journey, the likelihood that you will be successful is slim. My most successful startup right now is Pontera, which is uh, essentially helping Americans to retire richer through um, providing the service or providing the ability to manage their 401k. Then right? 401k for most of the people is the, the largest saving that they have. And right now, most of the people haven't done anything. Right? Right. So Pontera is, is creating that significant value. And Pontera is 10 years old. We are in this journey 10 years, and it was a long while for us to figure out the right product market fit and then the business model. And then, and now we are on a path of becoming extremely successful, right? But we, the, reaching this point is a long journey. And this is just an example. Right? In many cases, I and mean, for a second, I would say, look, if we would have two startups that are telling you the same story, one of them is six months old and another one is five years old. And you ask yourself, what is the likelihood of being successful for both of them? The one that is five years old have way higher likelihood of being successful. Now, it's less sexiest, but it's way higher likelihood because in their journey of failures, they already learn what doesn't work in many aspects. And that learning, the most critical part of it. Now, historical data shows that second-time entrepreneur increase the likelihood of being successful dramatically over the first time, regardless what happened on the first time, right? So if you go on this journey and you have learned so much, you dramatically increase the likelihood of being successful. And it doesn't matter if you are successful on the first one or not. And so in that sense, I would encourage people to go into this journey because even if nothing else works, the experience will last forever. Such great wisdom that you are providing, Uri, for sure. And everybody needs to get this book. As I mentioned, it is so good. We'll have all the information in the show notes, but you can get it on Amazon. Again, it's fall in love with the problem, not the solution. So thank you so much, Uri. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Kara Golden Show. Please give us a review and feel free to share this podcast with others who would benefit. And of course, feel free to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Just a reminder that I can be found on all platforms at Kara Golden. And if you want to hear more about my journey, I hope you will have a listen or pick up a copy of my book, Undaunted, which I share my journey, including founding and building Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a great rest of the week and goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. 
People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.